Hello and welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You've never guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh, and I do a thing here in the city. It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully, as you listen to this episode... You will learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's episode is all about James the Fourth. Now there were seven kings of Scotland named James, and James the Fourth is by far and away the most popular. He's by far and away the most fondly remembered of all of them. James, the Stuart monarchs are basically just like the Rocky films in that respect. And that everyone loves number four, three and five were awful. The first two were all right, and most of the spin-offs were utter shite. One, possibly two exceptions but as we all know right if Rocky Balboa actually was Scottish there's no way that he would have defeated Ivan Drago in Rocky 4 he's Scottish he would have been defeated spectacularly and that is exactly what James IV did at the Battle of Flodden in September 1513 arguably Scotland's most spectacular defeat in its history, and that is really saying something, folks. You know what I mean? We've been beating 3-0 off of Kazakhstan. We almost got beat off of Faroe Islands back in 2002, all right? We have, we've handled some defeats in our time, I can assure you that. And James IV's defeat at Flodden, it would result in his untimely death. So I suppose he's probably kind of, he's probably more like Apollo Creed than he is Rocky Balboa in that respect. And James, he would find himself, his, his final resting place would be uh, underneath an insurance building in London where he's buried headless. Scott, one, of, one of Scotland's most charismatic and important kings is buried headless underneath an insurance building in London and I'm fairly certain that the British media will stop at nothing until Alex Salmon to suffer the exact same fate. Now listen, if this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, right, I, I'm going to level you. Like, this, is, this is a podcast that is mainly Tory bashing mixed in with some jobby jokes. If that sounds like you think you're going to enjoy it, if this is the first time you've listened, then don't start here for Christ's sake, for goodness sake, right? Go back to the first episode, right? I don't really talk about anything topical. All the all the uh, podcasts go in chronological order. They give a decent bit of background at the one that follows it. So don't start here. Go back to the very first episode. Right, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast. Uh, this week's is all about James the Fourth. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there. And I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy! The 15-year-old James, the Duke of Rothsey, he had been the figurehead of a rebellion against the king. He was kind of like Katniss Everdeen, I suppose, except far less fucking miserable. And the rebellion against James IV's father, James III, had been a success. The rebels who had sought to overthrow the king and replace him with his 15-year-old son, they had defeated James III's forces at the Battle of Sockyburn, and Prince James was crowned King of Scotland on the 24th of June, 1488, the anniversary of the Battle of Bannockburn. And James's coronation, it was held the day after his father's funeral at Cambus Kenneth Abbey. It was kind of like Trump Tower in that respect, you know, distasteful. And like... Trump Tower, it was a, a purposefully overly showy event to try and legitimise this new regime who had just committed regicide. You know, in the same way that Donald Trump tries to make out that he's got loads of money despite the fact that he's bankrupt, racist, misogynist, xenophobic and completely unequipped with the necessary skills to be President of the United States of America. Now, 
The murder of James III had shocked the kingdom. As unpopular as James had been, the nature of his death, it was unacceptable to the community of the realm. And the new minority government, they had a job in their hand to be accepted by the country. The rebel nobles had to justify their position to those who had supported the previous regime. Now, James IV, he certainly would not have expected that his father would have died, that he would have been murdered at the Battle of Sockyburn. In fact, the rebel fighters, before they took part in the battle, they had taken an oath not to harm the king. But regardless of what anyone in the kingdom thought, James IV considered himself responsible for his father's death. James is said to have worn an iron chain belt, and each year after his father's death, he added a link to it, which you know, made swimming very difficult. Like, just imagine if Matt Hancock had to add an iron link chain to a belt for every death that he was responsible for. The guy would be at the centre of the fucking earth right now. In the new regime, two families rose to prominence, the Hepburns and the Humes. Patrick Hepburn, the Lord Hales, he became uh, Earl of Bothwell, Master of the Household, Keeper of Edinburgh Castle and Admiral of Scotland. Alexander Hume became Lord Hume, Warden of the East Marches, Keeper of Stirling Castle and Chamberlain for Life. They all sound like titles an insecure stay-at-home dad would give himself, don't they? Do you know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, no, no, I'm no, uh, I'm not a stay-at-home dad. I'm a master of the household, you know, a keeper of the castle, Chamberlain for Life, that's me. So to try and, and justify their position against those who had supported James III, Hume and Hepburn, they put to trial 10 of the late King's supporters for treasonable negotiations with England, a similar charge that Celtic Daz are trying to bring against Kieran Tierney for daring to move to the English Premiership. Now, none of the treason trials ended in executions, and not all in forfeitures, but it didn't stop a rising from occurring in the North East that was led by Alexander Gordon, Master of Huntley, and supported by the Earl of Lennox in the West. The new regime responded to the uh, to the rising by besieging the Lennox stronghold of Dumbarton Castle at huge cost, using massive artillery such as Mons Meg, but the castle didn't fall. Artillery can't take down the people of Dumbarton. Only heart disease can do that. And so Gordon and Lennox, they joined forces to march on Stirling Castle where the young king was resident and they put a petition to the monarch complaining about the injustice of the new regime which is exactly what rangers do when they have a complaint about the SPFL. They're like, oh, your majesty, we're not getting enough penalties. <laughs> so the, the new government, they were uh, they were overwhelmed by the size and scale of the rebellion, and so they needed to appease the rebels. Uh, and in early 1490, a parliament met that brought together the supporters of James III and those who had opposed them at Sockyburn. It was a more balanced parliament, and the new Privy Council immediately put a stop to the forfeitures of the inverted commas, treasonous supporters of James III. People such as William Elphinstone, uh, the Bishop of Aberdeen and the man who had founded Aberdeen University. Elphinstone had been James III's Chancellor and was reinstated in 1490 as Keeper of the Privy Seal, which is the most prestigious position at SeaWorld. And, uh, and Elphinstone would go on to be one of James IV's closest advisors throughout his reign. Now, the 1419 Parliament has become known as the Healing Parliament. And the Healing Parliament, it had averted an all-out war. Tory Blair would have fucking hated it. And the Healing Parliament, it was accepted by the whole Scottish political community and would be an important lesson in diplomacy James IV would carry throughout his reign. It's mad to think, isn't it, that there was a more balanced and fair Parliament 
500 years ago than the current band of lawbreakers stealing devolution from underneath our noses at the moment, a parliament that existed over 500 years ago had better scruples, morals and diplomacy than in 2020. And they had just murdered a fucking king. James was incredibly intelligent and he was a brilliant linguist. He could speak Latin, French, Flemish, German, Italian, Danish, Spanish. And he was the last king of Scotland fluent in Gaelic, making him popular amongst the Highlanders because they couldn't. Uh, James, he was athletic. He enjoyed tournaments, fencing, archery, hawking. Which I find a tad strange for such an accomplished linguist, you know, I thought he'd be I thought he'd be more into the duolingo owl than the old uh, hawking, you can. Uh, James, he enjoyed drinking, gambling, hunting, he was basically the, the James Bond of Scottish kings, and by that I mean he didn't treat women particularly well. James was handsome, he was so handsome in fact, that he was fed a succession of lovers by men acting like Tiger Woods' caddy, eagerly encouraging a teenage James IV's sexual intrigues with their relatives so that they could further their own political careers. James IV's, James IV's first mistress in 1492 was Marion Boyd, the niece of Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Angus. Marion had two Ill illegitimate children with James, Alexander, who would become Archbishop of St Andrews, and uh, a daughter, Catherine. The affair ended in 1493 and Marion was married off. Next came Margaret Drummond, daughter of uh, the Lord of Drummond and one of the royal justiciars. The affair lasted two years. Margaret was instilled in Stirling Castle and she gave James a daughter, Margaret. In 1497, she was sent back to her father, suitably rewarded. And the final public mistress was the longest lasting, Janet Kennedy, who gave birth to a son, James, the Earl of Murray. Janet was the, the daughter of John Lord Kennedy and James fell out with John Kennedy over the relationship. Kennedy was removed as Chancellor and was placed on house arrest on the Isle of Butte for 10 years, which sounds sounds fucking amazing, to be honest, doesn't it? Being king, like being able to take your ex-girlfriend's dads and just like lock them up on an island for 10 years. That properly does sound class. Now, James's womanising continued after his uh, marriage in 1503. He showered gifts on his final mistress, Isabella Stewart, daughter of the daughter of James, Earl of Buchan, who gave James a daughter, Janet. And James, he had a, a series of illegitimate children to a, a number of different of different women. He's remembered in Scotland as, a, as the Lee Griffiths monarch. The question was, who should James be married to? James III, he had arranged uh, for James to marry Cecilia, the daughter of Edward IV, but that marriage arrangement fell through when James III accepted dowry payments from Edward IV for the wedding, but he did nothing to actually plan or organise a wedding. <laughs> it was basically just like an, an episode of Don't Tell the Bride. Another marriage to one of Edward's nieces fell through when Richard III was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, marking the end of the Yorkist reign of English monarchs and the beginning of the Tudor reign with Henry VII. Whoever it was that James ended up with, they would have to be of, of high royal status. Basically, the, the Kate Middleton approach to life at St Andrews University. The rebels who had overthrown James III and were now effectively running the country, they were vehemently anti-English, and they had been angered by James III's pro-English politics. So while tensions with England were running high, Scotland offered asylum to the pretender, Perkin Warbeck, who claimed to be the younger of the two murdered princes in the tower, the heirs of Edward IV, who had mysteriously disappeared in the Tower of London in 1483. The totally deluded Warbeck genuinely thought that he had an actual shot at power. He was like a, a late 15th century Douglas Ross, and James IV 
used Perkin Warbeck as a pawn in the rivalry of the 1490s as the Tudor Lancastrian king Henry VII struggled to keep hold of power against a Yorkist backlash being led by their new leader, Marcelo Bielsa. Scottish backing of Warbeck's cause was merely a, was merely a, a cynical diplomatic excuse to launch a military offensive against England. James IV used Warbeck as, uh, as an excuse to mobilise an army. A bit like Tony Blair with Saddam Hussein, moving into northern England and plundering Northumberland in September 1496. When Henry VII raised an army in Newcastle to put down the Scottish insurrection, James IV merely withdrew back into Scotland and left Warbeck to his fate. He was captured in Hampshire in 1497 and then executed in 1499. Scotland had allowed a deluded Englishman to believe he had some sort of backing in Scotland when the truth was nobody knew who he was or gave a shit. Perkin Warbeck was just like Richard Leonard basically, which is a joke that works too well because you don't even know who Richard Leonard is, do you? And Henry VII, he quickly declared war on Scotland after James IV's raids into Northern England. But before he could launch a full-scale invasion, another insurrection rose up in Cornwall and Devon, which Henry was forced to put down in battle in Surrey. James took advantage of the distraction by bombarding Norman Norham Castle, in Northern England. James IV, he was making himself popular by showing he wasn't scared of the English and not scared to take on the full might of the English military. James had successfully avenged the embarrassment of the English invasion of 1482. He fought Henry VII to a standstill and forced the English king into negotiating a peace treaty in 1502. And as part of the treaty, James IV was rewarded with a marriage to Henry VII's eldest daughter, Margaret Tudor. A marriage that would be known as the marriage of the thistle and the rose. And the marriage of the thistle and the rose would have huge dynastic implications for Scotland as it was James and Margaret's great-grandson, James VI, who would inherit the throne of England 100 years later and become the first king of the entire British Isles. The marriage of the thistle and the rose took place in great pomp and ceremony at Holyrood Palace on the 8th of August 1503. Now, the thistle and the rose obviously refers to the national emblems of Scotland and England, and the thistle is perhaps the most instantly recognisable of all Scottish emblems. The thistle has long been a symbol of Scotland. It first appeared on coins stamped by James III in 1470, perhaps as a Scottish response to the English War of the Roses. The thinking being, if you pricks are going to fight over flowers, then we'll pick a flower that can kick both of your flowers' asses. Although tradition says that actually the origins, the origins of the thistle as Scotland's national emblem goes back to the first Viking invasions of the late 8th century. When some Vikings on a surprise nighttime attack, they alerted the Scots to their presence after one of them trod in a thistle and yelled out in pain. Hence, the thistle became Scotland's national emblem and, oh you can't ye, our national slogan. Now, however the thistle came to be a symbol of Scotland, it makes complete sense as our national emblem, ladies and gentlemen, as this is a country that is full of pricks, I can assure you. Now, James's marriage to Margaret Tudor in 1503 it failed to secure more than a brief honeymoon period of peace with England. It also very nearly failed to produce a son which who or a son who could inherit the, th the Stuart throne. James and Margaret's first son, James, was born in 1507, but both the queen and child were gravely ill. So James, he undertook a 190 kilometre pilgrimage on foot to Galloway, which was his 
nearest available test centre. James travelled the 180 kilometres so he could visit the, the shrine of St Ninian at, uh, at Whithorn in Galloway, but his efforts were in vain as the child... He died a year later. Then, in 1508, Margaret gave birth to another child, Arthur, who died a year later. And then finally, on the 10th of April, 1508, Margaret gave birth to a child, James, who would survive to become the future James V. James IV is celebrated as Scotland's Renaissance King. Now, the term Renaissance it literally means rebirth and was prompted by the discovery of more and more classical Greek and Roman writings in southern Europe throughout the 15th and 16th centuries. The Renaissance started in Italy, then France, and finally moved to northern Europe. It was a bit like the coronavirus. And the rediscovery of these classical Greek and Roman writings, they changed people's perceptions of ancient and contemporary life. There was a realisation that thousands of years previous to the Middle Ages, the civilization was more intelligent, cultured, and forward-thinking. It'll, it'll be just like when we tell our grandchildren about a pre-Brexit Britain. You know, just like, oh, honestly, kids, it was amazing. You could go anywhere you wanted in Europe and you didn't have to pay roaming charges. It was really quite something. Hard to imagine, I know. Now, all across Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries, new, new ideas in philosophy, education, literature, science, art, technology, architecture, they were emerging. And thankfully, your Auntie Lynn wasn't about to spread some bullshit Facebook nonsense about why masks didn't work or why global warming is a hoax. And in Scotland, James IV was, he was the embodiment of these Renaissance ideas. James kept a large, international, cosmopolitan court who carried out various experiments and conversed in at least six languages. Now, one of James's most eccentric court familiars was the Italian, sco the Italian scholar John Damien de... John Damian de Falcusis. I think I'm saying that right. Falcusis. Uh, James IV set up Falcusis in a laboratory in Stirling Castle, and in September 1507, Falcusis carried out his most memorable experiment when he constructed a huge pair of wings and leapt from the battlements of Stirling Castle, plunging into a dung heap and breaking his leg in the process. A perfect metaphor for Brexit, if ever there was one. Now, Falcusis' excuse for the failure of the flight was for the failure of the flight was that he had used hen feathers, and had he used eagle feathers, then the flight would have been a success. Presumably, he couldn't blame flying too close to the sun since he was in Scotland. And it may have been a bullshit excuse, but still, you know, leaping from the ramparts of Stirling Castle using homemade wings out of hen feathers is still preferable to flying Ryanair, in my opinion. Now, it's easy to laugh at Falcusis' effort, but Falcusis would have known of da Vinci's work in aeronautics, and he was trying it out for himself. Now, it may have been a bit like British Leyland trying to produce a Ferrari, but it was indicative of a time of science and experimentation in Scotland. James IV encouraged art and literature as well as science, installing the first printing press in Scotland on Edinburgh's Cowgate in 1507. I'm sure James IV would be delighted to learn that it's been made into student accommodation now. 
and his reign encouraged a creative outburst in vernacular literature. He supported Scottish makers such as the brilliant wordsmith William Dunbar, who wrote witty, melancholy, grotesque, moving and outrageous works of prose and poetry. James IV took a, a keen interest in the development of education as well. In 1496, he introduced the first Education Act in Scotland, ordering that the firstborn sons of all of Scotland's barons and freeholders were sent to grammar school from the age of eight until they had mastered Latin and had a basic education. Boris is still working towards his. In 1495, James IV supported the founding of King's College in Aberdeen by Bishop William Elphinstone and in 1506 he granted a royal charter to the College of Surgeons in Edinburgh where James would watch surgeries, a tradition that is upheld by Her Majesty the Queen who attends surgery every single year. Basically what happens is once a year, right, the Queen, she has to have all of her blood pumped out and then replaced with the young blood of one of uh, Prince Andrew's victims. Do you know what I mean? Like, Prince Andrew takes a lot of shit, but basically all he's doing is he's harvesting victims for his maw. James IV also undertook vast building projects throughout his reign, building the Great Hall and Stirling Castle, upgrading Edinburgh Castle's Great Hall and building palaces throughout the country. He also started the duelling of the A9, which is uh, still being carried out some 500 years later. James, he, he toured the country attending courts and dishing out justice for serious crimes and developed the idea of a central court, the Court of Session, which was founded by his successor, James V. James, he also kept a, a menagerie of wild beasts, lions, tigers, elephants, all that kind of stuff. And on his death, they were uh, they were left at Callander, just outside of Stirling, which became Blair Drummond Safari Park, the world's oldest Safari Park founded in the year 1495. Traditionally, Henry VIII is remembered as the, the father of the Royal Navy, but the truth is that Henry VIII's shipbuilding it was a direct response to what was happening in Scotland. Henry VIII, he was just copying off of James IV, a bit like Boris Johnson listening to Nicola Sturgeon's daily briefings and doing the exact same thing a couple of days later. The 1482 English invasion of Scotland had highlighted how vulnerable Scotland's ports were to attack. The English, they had been able to sail into Leith unopposed to support the invasion in 1482. So, at the turn of the century, James IV made the construction of a Scottish navy one of his top priorities. Two new dockyards were built on the 4th at Newhaven in Edinburgh and Pool of Earth near Stirling. Both were deep water ports capable of building the largest ships during James IV's reign, he built, bought, hired or seized for the crown no fewer than 38 vessels, the most famous of which was the Great Michael, which was launched from New Haven Harbour in October 1511. The Great Michael, it took four years to build, it was 55 metres long, had 30 bronze cannons, a crew of 300 cost a staggering £30,000 and was the largest and most powerful vessel afloat when it launched. The Great Michael is said to have wasted all of the wood and fife. The only way they can get wood and fife now is if they spot an attractive cousin. Now, in truth, the ship was a bit of a floating disaster. They probably should have called it the Great Michael Barrymore because of that. But anyway, how much this huge navy actually benefited Scotland is debatable. The navy, it was expensive, a bit pointless, and it didn't really act as an effective deterrent to foreign aggressors. It was purely an attempt to remain relevant and to look powerful amongst the international superpowers. The exact same justifications for Scotland housing Britain's nuclear arsenal 30 miles from its most populous city. This 
Huge navy. It was just another string to the bow of the royal persona James IV had created for himself. James was popular. He was vigorous, enlightened. Scotland had never known a monarch like him. Under James IV's rule, Scotland enjoyed its highest prestige on the European stage. The country it had stood up to England and James had proved himself as a powerful king not to be messed with. But he was still Scottish. So, of course things were about to go tits up. James IV would find his end at the front of a Scottish army that suffered unimaginable casualties at the Battle of Flodden fought on the 9th of September 1513. It was a needless battle that need not and should not have happened, but at least James IV elected to lead and die in his pointless war, unlike Tony Blair. The peace Scotland had enjoyed with England after the marriage of the Thistle and the Rose did not last long. When Henry VII died in 1509 and Henry VIII became king, England's foreign policy and attitude towards Scotland would become more aggressive, with old claims of English suzerainty over Scotland resurrected. France at the beginning of Henry VIII's reign was becoming incredibly powerful under Louis XII, as was Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella. In 1511, Henry VIII joined the Holy League, which might sound like a Christian remake of the Justice League, but it was in fact an alliance between Spain, England, the Pope and Venice against France. And to counter the threat of the Holy League, the French King once again called upon Scotland as part of the old alliance to launch a divisionary assault on the north of England. In May 1513, Henry VIII invaded France and Louis XII encouraged James IV to attack England. Louis sent arms, money and experienced captains to help train a Scottish army. The French Queen sent James a gold and turquoise ring and a letter encouraging him to be her champion. Take but three steps into England and break a lance for my sake. Um, the French hated all lances after one of them cheated in their big bike race. James almost certainly didn't want to go to war with England. He was married to Henry VIII's sister after all, but he would have been delighted to have had the chance to demonstrate Scotland's importance on the international stage. And so James lent his great fleet to the French and he prepared an army for invasion into the north of England. On the 26th of July 1513, in keeping with what James saw as chivalric conduct, he sent notice to Henry VIII of his intention to invade Northumberland. He actually sent a letter to the guy to let him know he was going to attack. Do you know what I mean? Like, not wanting to put Henry VIII out like he was visiting his in-laws or something. Now, the army that entered England in August 1513 was the largest and most well-equipped army to ever cross the border. On the 22nd of August 1513, Henry VIII, he rejected an ultimatum, and so James took his huge army and heavy artillery and pounded Norham Castle, Ethel Castle and Ford Castle into submission. Henry VIII, he sent the experienced 70-year-old Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, to deal with the threat from Scotland, and by the 4th of September, Surrey had assembled an army of 20,000 at Alnwick, about 19 kilometres away from James's base at Ford Castle. Now, Surrey was concerned the Scots army, having taken the castles of northern England, had fulfilled their obligation to distract the English and would now retreat back into Scotland. And so, Surrey, he appealed to James's notoriously chivalrous nature and challenged him to fight by the 9th of September at the latest. James, of course, accepted and set up his army on the Flodden Hill, a near impossible position for the English to attack. So Surrey tried once again to appeal to James's chivalrous side and challenged James to fight on more favourable ground. James refused, saying it ill benefits an earl to tell a king what to do. 
and so Surrey pulled off an audacious flanking manoeuvre, and while attempting to flank the Scots, the English army was at its most vulnerable, but James, but James chose not to attack. Instead, he moved from his near impenetrable position, and he moved his army onto uh, the ridge of another hill. The English forces, they gathered in front of them, and uh, there was a stretch of bogland that separated the two sides. At 4pm on the 9th of September, the artillery fire began. The Scots artillery, it was ineffective because, I mean, Scottish arteries were blocked, obviously. The English artillery, on the other hand, was winning despite firing up the hill. It was a bit like playing at Fir Park, um, which is an incredibly niche joke about Motherwell Stadium. Uh, the English artillery, it was having a devastating effect on the master ranks of Scottish spearmen. It forced them off of the ridge and into a charge. A charge that James IV led himself. He rode at the front of his army, leaving his army leaderless while he was on the front lines shaking hands with COVID-infected patients. The Scots spearmen, they were caught in the bogland between them and the English. And the English army, armed with halberds, these were smaller spears that had an axe incorporated, they were able to cut the longer Scots spears, leaving them as defenceless as an NHS doctor using the non-existent PPE from a contract awarded to a pest control company. A surprise cavalry attack then wiped out the Scots reserves and James, in a last-ditch attempt to save the day, launched himself at the Earl of Surrey but was cut down as he did so. He fell with a deep gash in his neck and his shoulder. His hand, it was hanging by a stretch of skin after he was over vigorously ripping the heat clean off it and his final wound was an arrow fired from close range through his open mouth after three hours of furious fighting thousands and thousands and thousands of scotsmen lay dead the king his illegitimate son alexander the archbishop of saint andrews two bishops 11 earls 15 barons and 200 knights lay dead as well the body of james the fourth was so badly mutilated he was as unrecognizable as amanda holden after another botox injection and his body wasn't recovered until the following day James's body was taken to Berwick where it was embalmed, then sent to Durham, York and London where it was placed in the monastery of Sheen in Surrey. And after the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th century, the body was dumped in the lumber room and it wasn't rediscovered for another hundred years when uh, some workmen stumbled upon it and on discovering the body, they cut off its head and started to play football with it. Like imagine doing that. Imagine discovering a body and the first thing that you think to do is to play football with its head. Only Matt Hancock could be more disrespectful to the dead than that, with his stupid fucking smirking face. The head was recovered by Queen Elizabeth's glazier, Lancelot Young, who kept it on the mantelpiece of his London home, which incidentally is also what Piri Patel does. You know, she's one Syrian granny away from having the complete saint. The head and the body, they were eventually thrown in a grave in the churchyard of St Michael's Church in Wood Street in London. It's now the site of an insurance company building. One of Scotland's most charismatic, important kings is buried headless underneath an insurance building in London. It was an unceremonious and humiliating end for Scotland's Renaissance king. James IV was the most successful king of the late medieval period. Scotland, under James IV, came the closest it ever would to becoming a major European player. Flodden and James's death meant Scotland lost not only a king, but most significantly of all, its self-confidence. Never again could Scotland expect to defeat their mightier neighbour or 
qualify for a major tournament. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. Um, if you did enjoy this episode and it's the first time that you've listened, then check out some of the other ones. If you like this one, you'll like the rest as well. Um, you can contribute to the series. You can purchase the equivalent of a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com. I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland podcast. Uh, and if you're a regular listener and you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com. Again, I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. What I try to do is through those accounts is I try to raise enough money to be able to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of whiskey that I match with what we've been talking about in the podcast. So if you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle, you can do that by leaving me a wee bit of money on those accounts and sending me an email, sending me a DM, uh, leaving a comment on social media, and I basically just choose someone at random. Um, and so today's whiskey, <clears throat> I reckon if... Um, when you're talking about James IV, you need to choose a whiskey that is bold, that is popular, that is at the forefront of kind of pushing Scotland forward, but is also just a little bit arrogant as well. And I think if James IV was a whiskey, he would be the Macallan. It's everyone knows how good it is, it knows how good it is, it's bold. It's popular, it's a little bit arrogant, it's at the forefront of Scotland, it puts whiskey on the map through its sheer excellence, and uh, that is what I would uh, match today's podcast with. Although it should be said that James IV actually has a bit of history with whiskey in Scotland. Uh, the first the first recorded mention of whiskey in Scotland comes from 19, uh, sorry, 1494, when James IV ordered eight belts of whiskey from Lindoris Abbey in Fife. That's over 200 bottles. And that's the first recorded, kind of written down mention of uh, of malt whiskey in Scotland. So there you go. He's got a bit of history. Now, there's uh, there's no, well, there's been a refurbished distillery at Lindoris, which is, uh, you know, a very kind of old, old site of whiskey distillation, but they don't have any bottles released just yet. So I can't, I probably would have chosen that one if not. But anyway, so if you'd like to, to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Macallan, um, they'd be a very, very lucky person. Then you know what to do. Just send me a DM or an email or whatever. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, folks. Please give me a, a wee follow on social media and get me on Facebook and Instagram, all that kind of stuff, at Montebank Tours. Give the podcast a rate and a like. Tell your pals. Do everything that people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. And, uh, and I'll see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.